Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to begin at verse 12 and read down through the end of the chapter. And let me say before I do that, uh, that this portion of Scripture contains a number of grammatical difficulties and interpretive difficulties. Um, I trust that the Lord gave me grace in preparing for this as I sought to exposit it the best that I know how in its context, uh, in the way that God wrote it. Let us hear what the Lord has for us as we finish out chapter number 6. It is a longer portion than normal, but there's really no natural division in verses 12 through 20. It is one thought that Paul has, and I want to preach it that way. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse number 12, these are the words of God. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Meats for the belly and the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his own power. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God? Ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I'm going to preach to you this morning concerning the body and immorality. The body and immorality. What we have in this portion of Scripture is a Christian theology of the body. This is a message that is greatly needed in a society where many gorge their body with unhealthy foods. Uh, They abuse their body with all sorts of vices from without. And they ruin their bodies with all sorts of sexual deviancy. We live in a culture that is consumed with satisfying its physical lusts and pleasures. We are sex-crazed and sex-driven. And sadly, there's often little difference in this area between the secular world and the professing Christian church. Christian men are consumed with lust and pornography at a growing rate. Sadly, pornography is no longer a male-only issue, but it is affecting women as well. And as men are lusting more and more in the church, Christian women are wearing clothing that would have made even lost people to blush just 50 years ago. The hookup culture has infected the church. Premarital sex and things that lead up to it are becoming more and more normalized, even by those who profess Christ, because after all, everyone sins, God will forgive you, and it's not that big of a deal. You could say, well, perhaps those who profess Christ and yet live in these sins are not true Christians. 
And I'm sure that's true in many cases, but I, I don't think it's that simple. What we are experiencing is Christianity in a culture and Christians in a culture who battle and struggle with these types of sins more and more as the culture embraces them more and more. Uh, if you are struggling with these sins, it, it's perhaps not because you're a false convert, but because you are bombarded by these sins and their many temptations to a degree that exceeds what previous generations of Christians in our country had to endure. We've come to a place in America where if you go to a busy public place, you practically have to be constantly looking away to guard your eyes. Not just from sexual temptations, though that is the primary one, but others as well. So I, I get it. I'm saying this because I, I understand it. I'm not beating up on anyone here today. I'm right there with you in the struggle for purity and holiness. I'm in the trenches with you. But the vastness of the temptation is no excuse for our sins when we have the full access to the grace of God. Yes, the temptations might be more now than they were uh, 25 years ago in our American society, but God's grace is still available to His people and it is still greater than all of those temptations. And what we need is a full-orbed biblical theology of the body. See, when a pastor sets out to preach on sexual temptation and sexual sin, a lot of people immediately think he's just going to get into a bunch of uh, strategic tips and tricks to avoid temptation. Well, the Bible doesn't offer that. There are principles. There are guidelines. We will get into them. But, but first and foremost, we have to understand that the problem of sexuality is a theological problem. Because doctrine always determines behavior. Always. What you believe will always affect what you do. The reason why you habitually commit sexual sins is because you don't truly believe all that the Bible says about them. You have been convinced by the lie that is, it is being perpetrated in culture and trying to creep into the church that they're really not all that bad. The reason why you don't care for and protect your body is because you don't truly believe all that the Bible says about your body. Some of you perhaps have never even stopped to say, what does the Bible teach about my physical body? About its importance, about its, its view, about, about, about how God thinks about my body. So in this text, in this passage, Paul shows us the goodness of, and importance of the body, and the heinousness, the evil, and the wickedness of sins that are perpetrated against the body. The first thing I want you to see, chapter 6, verses 12 through 14, the doctrine. That's where we're going to begin, with the doctrine of the body. And what Paul will do is he will address the false Corinthian doctrine of the body, and he will correct it with the true scriptural doctrine. See, what happened to the Corinthian church was not unique. When a church does not make a concentrated effort to be reformed by the word of God, they will be conformed to the pervading culture around them every single time. I do not believe 
that we as a church should be consumed with everything that the world is doing, okay? It should not eat us up. We should not wake up every morning and immediately think, what new invention have they come up with now? That, that would be a very miserable outlook. And I, sadly, I know some Christians that have that kind of outlook, and they're very consequently depressed. But we do need to be aware of the common ilks of society so that we are prepared to guard against them. Because if we don't guard against them, they will overtake us. They will find their way in, and they will affect the way we worship the Lord and what we believe about ourselves and our God. The Corinthians struggled with sexual morality because they lived in a sexually immoral culture. And they allowed that culture to invade the church. We talked about how things are becoming in our day and age. I don't think we could make the argument that we live in a more perverse culture than Corinth. And so what that does is it takes away the argument that, well, Paul, you just don't understand what we're facing. (laughs) You just don't understand the temptations that, that we have around us. No, he understands completely. God understands completely. In ancient Corinth, there was a large rock that overlooked the entire city called Acro Corinth. Situated on Acro Corinth was the temple of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, sex, and beauty. Prostitutes worked in that temple and they performed sexual acts as part of their pagan worship. These prostitutes would then go down into the city below and offer their services for profit. And this was something that Corinth was known for. Corinth was a seaport town and people from other parts of the world would come to Corinth specifically for that very reason. It was an integral part of Corinthian society. By the time Paul is writing this letter, the term Corinthian had already become a derogatory term. If you were to live elsewhere in the world and you knew someone that was very sexually immoral, you would say, you are acting like a Corinthian. And the Corinthian church did something that is never an option for any true church or any true Christian. They accommodated their doctrine to make room for this sin. They formulated their belief system so as not to push against the grain of the sins of society. Jackson will know what I'm referring to here, but we know um, a community of churches that are on a Native American reservation, and one of the primary forms of income there are casinos. The casinos are owned by the Native American tribes. Obviously, the Christian pastors, the Native American pastors, are against much of what happens in the casinos. But yet, they will be adamant in telling you that they shy away from preaching against some of those things because they know that it's a main source of income for their tribe. So kind of they're they're cutting off their foot to save their face by taking a hard stand against it because they benefit from those profits. Well, there's a sense in which that's what Corinth was doing. It was a part of society. They didn't want to go too countercultural. They wanted to stay appeasing the society around them, so they changed their doctrine. They allowed the culture to dictate their message. What we have in verses 12 through 14 is Paul quoting the Corinthian doctrine and then refuting it and replacing it with biblical precepts. Now, this is something that I had not really previously encountered or or realized about this passage before I studied it out deeply. 
When Paul says, all things are lawful unto me, I don't believe that is what Paul is actually saying. Now, it's difficult to be sure about this because there's no quotation marks in in Greek. There's no punctuation in Greek. But the grammatical structure of the passage is akin to the sort of thing that we see Jesus doing in the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. I think that's what's going on here in verses 12 and 13. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. And in this text, we have the but, we just don't have the I say unto you, right? So when Paul says, all things are lawful unto me, I believe he's quoting the Corinthian mindset of the day. I believe that because of, yes, the grammatical structure, but also because the phrase, all things are lawful unto me, would be wildly inconsistent with the rest of the chapter if it were what Paul was saying. Why? Because in verses 9 and 10, he just went through a list of physical sins that he says in no uncertain terms are not lawful. If you are living in them, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. So how could he then say, two verses later, all things are lawful for me? So either Paul is starkly contradicting himself, or he's quoting a popular Corinthian principle. So I dug into this Corinthian phrase, this slogan, all things are lawful unto me, and what I found out was that all things are lawful unto me comes straight out of Greek philosophy. It comes straight out of a pagan philosophy known as dualism. Dualism was a a pagan teaching akin to Gnosticism that essentially taught that all things material were inherently evil and would perish, and only that which is immaterial, which is spiritual, is of any worth or value. Dualism teaches that all flesh is inherently bad, and only the spirit or soul of a man is of any worth. Do you see how this teaching could be used to license sexual sins? The false teaching allowed the Corinthians to look at sexual immorality and say, well, so what? Yeah, we're, we're, we're doing it. Yes, we're having premarital sex. Yes, we're, we're purchasing harlots. And yes, we're giving our bodies over to this filth. But it doesn't matter. It's just a physical interaction. It's just something that we do with our bodies. It doesn't affect our minds or our spirits. But the problem, as Paul will point out later in this text, is that God has created us and God views us holistically. The body and the spirit... The material aspects of you and the immaterial aspects of you cannot be so separated. Paul offers two refutations to this dualistic notion that all things are lawful. All things are lawful unto me. Here's the first refutation. But, now this is Paul speaking. This is him refuting this Corinthian mindset. But, all things are not expedient. Expedient or profitable valuable, helpful. In other words, Paul is teaching the Corinthians that not everything we have the ability to do is permissible to do. Just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. The Christian ethic is not, can I do it? Did God give me the physical ability to do it? The Christian ethic is, is this beneficial to me, to those around me, and to the glory of God? That's the Christian ethic. Here's a fun thought. If you made every decision by asking the question, what would most glorify God in this given situation, you would never sin. 
most glorify God in this given situation and do that and you would never sin. So Paul says, you say all things are lawful, but it doesn't matter if you can do it. The, the question is, is it expedient? Is it profitable? Is, does it bring glory to God? Does it prefer others above yourself? Does it love your neighbor? And then a second refutation. He repeats their phrase. See, this is the grammatical structure that leads me to believe, and I hope will lead you to believe, that Paul is very specifically quoting a slogan and refuting it. He repeats it. All things are lawful for me. Second refutation. But I will not be brought under the power of any, of anything. See, Paul did not attempt to be as worldly as possible and still be a Christian. Paul did not go through the, the store and see scantily, clothed, scantily sewn clothing, immodest clothing, and say, well, I can still wear that and be a Christian. Uh, Paul did not thumb through the channels and, and see a, a show that goes against the, the core of biblical teaching and say, well, I can still watch that and be a Christian. Paul was not looking to, to ride the tightrope and be as worldly as possible and still maintain a profession of faith. Paul did not want to do anything that could potentially have the mastery over him. He didn't want to even allow it into his life. Paul never allowed the sins of the body to gain control or to gain mastery over him. Again, the Christian ethic for the body is not do whatever you want with your body because your body doesn't matter. The Christian ethic is do what is most profitable with your body, do what most glorifies God with your body, and don't allow your body to be mastered by anything other than God. Paul continues in verse 13. Meats for the belly and belly for meats. Again, this is not Paul speaking. This is Paul quoting the Corinthians. It's the same principle. It's the same philosophical argument. The dualism of the Corinthians led them to believe that the sole purpose of their bodies was to gratify as much physical pleasure as they possibly could. So when it came to food, well, eat as much as you want. Eat whatever you want. Gorge yourself. Don't worry about being healthy. Don't worry about maintaining proper weight. Don't worry about maintaining nutrition. Don't worry if anybody else has anything to eat. Just eat. Eat as much as you can. We know that that's how Greek culture functioned, an ancient Roman culture. Uh, I hope nobody is in here on an empty stomach, but in ancient Greek and Roman societies, they had things in, in their public places called vomitoriums. And what that was, was it was a place by the exit way so that when people would come for a big feast or a celebration, they could gorge themselves and they could vomit it back up and come back for more. And that was celebrated in society. I mean, they planned to go to such things and to do such things. Why? Well, meats for the belly and the belly for meats. But, but God shall destroy both it and them. You know, God's going to destroy my body anyways. He's going to destroy my belly anyways. So it doesn't matter what I put in my body. Now, I'm looking around at squeamish faces, but think about it. Are we really that far from society today? Are we really that far removed? I mean, if there's, if there's any sin which is wholeheartedly embraced and celebrated in churches today, it's the sin of gluttony. 
But what are we saying when we gorge ourselves at the expense of our own health? What are we saying when we, when we put things into our body that we know are going to be very harmful to our body, or perhaps we put things into our body that in moderation would not be harmful to our body, but we don't care about moderation. We just want to gratify pleasure. What are we saying when we do that? We're saying the body that God has given me is not as important as gratifying my lust for one more bite, for one more piece of pie, for one more brownie. My body is not as important as the endorphins that are released when I put that food on my tongue. Now, I'll be the first to confess my guilt. I can't count the number of times I have continued eating past the point of being full just to satisfy craving. Because of greed. Because of a desire to have more than God saw fit to give me. Whatever the case may be, it's not a sin that we should laugh about and joke about. It's a sin we should repent of. But that was the Corinthian mindset. I don't bring this up because this text is not about gluttony, but it applies. It applies. No moderation. No self-control. This was the Corinthian mindset. It doesn't matter what I do with my body because my physical body is evil and God is going to destroy it. Eat whatever you want. Eat as much as you want. Be as promiscuous as you want. Sleep with whoever you want. Nothing is off limits because it's all physical. The belly for, for meats, meat for the belly. And they would also say the body for sex and sex for the body. That's why God gave me this body. And we think these are crazy arguments. With How could anyone think that way? But these are the views of society today. What does the world say, especially about promiscuity? Well, sex is no big deal. It's just a little fun. No strings attached. I think there was a movie that came out by that title, No Strings Attached. And the whole, the whole movie was all about how uh, there, you know, two people can get together and, and, and have as much sex as they want. There's no strings attached. You know, don't, don't catch feelings, right? Just satisfy your physical desires. That's what Paul is quoting as the Corinthian mindset. So what is the biblical correction to all of this? Well, we find it at the end of verse 13, where Paul says, you're saying, you know, uh, the body for this, the body for that. Paul goes, well, I have one for you. He says, now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Two things for us to see here. Number one, your body is for the Lord. And secondly, the Lord is for your body. What do we make of these two truths? Well, one, when God saves you, he requires all of you. He requires all of you. He does not just save you and say, because you're a Christian, you have to think Christian thoughts, but what you do with your body is whatever. He requires all of you. Love the Lord thy God with all thy body, Soul, strength, mind, it requires all of you. God has placed moral limits on what you can and cannot do with your body. There are gray areas on that, okay? I admit, there are gray areas on, can I do this with my body? Can I do that with my body? But sex is not one of them. There's no ambiguity in that arena. 
God did not give you a body for fornication. It's not why he gave you a body. And when you commit the sin of fornication, you are using your body to do something that God never intended for you to do. God did not give you a body so that you could pursue your lusts and your passions. He gave you a body so you could glorify him. That's why he gave you your body. And secondly, what does Paul mean by the Lord is for the body? Body for the Lord, Lord for the body. Well, secondly, we see that Christ did not just die to save your soul. He died to save your body as well. His blood was shed not just to save your spirit, but to save your physical body from eternal destruction. This is proved in verse 14. Paul goes on to say, And God hath both raised up the Lord, and will also raise us up by his own power. So he says, the same resurrection that Jesus experienced is the resurrection that we will one day experience. Because he rose from the dead, we will rise from the dead. Now let me ask you a very simple question. When Christ rose from the dead, what body was he in? Did God destroy his body and give him a new one? No, he came out of the tomb in the same body that he lived in for 33 years. He came out of the tomb in the body that was beaten and crucified. And when he appeared to his disciples and Thomas didn't believe it, he said, see, put your finger in my holes. Put your finger in my side. Look at the piercings on my hands. He was in the same body. Now, don't don't misunderstand. He was in a glorified body because the curse of sin had been removed. The limitations of fallen humanity had been removed. But he was in his own body. And the same resurrection that he had will be the resurrection that we will have as believers. When God glorifies us, he will not give us a new body. He will perfect the body that we have. The Bible says that God makes all things new, not all new things. See, there is nothing... Why, why is that? Because there was nothing wrong with anything God created. He created the world in six days and he pronounced it all good. There's nothing wrong with the creation. There is nothing wrong, brothers and sisters, with your body. See, that, that's another thing with the theology of the body that we need to understand. God made no mistakes. There's nothing wrong with your body. But your body, though created perfect, is marred by the fall, is marred by sin. And so what needs to happen is not that your body is destroyed and you're given a new one. What needs to happen is the curse of sin needs to be removed. That has already happened for your soul. You have received the redemption of your soul. You have not yet received the redemption of your body, but it has already been purchased on the cross. And on the day of the resurrection, you will receive the redemption of your body. Again, notice I said this text includes some difficult things for us to understand. But the dualism of the Corinthians, this pagan Gnosticism, it argued that the body was ultimately evil. It would eventually be destroyed forever. Therefore, it doesn't matter what we do with our body. Have you ever heard anyone say about someone who dies, well, they have broken free from the cage of their body? That's not really the Christian mindset. Yes, my body, because my body is unredeemed, my body has not experienced its redemption, There is a sense in which my fallen flesh sometimes goes against the inner man. 
But my body is not the ultimate enemy. Sin is the ultimate enemy. And one day, this body, this body will be glorified. That sin will be removed from this body, and I will dwell eternally with God in this body. And so will you if you're a believer. That should cause you to think differently about how you take care of your body. Paul's argument, the Bible's argument, is that your body will be raised from the dead, and your body will be glorified, and you will spend eternity in your body. Therefore, glorify God in your body even now. That's the doctrine. That's the doctrine. But now I want you to see, beginning in verse 15, the delinquency. Paul has laid out the theological framework, and he will now apply it to a specific situation in the Corinthian church. Verse 15, Paul says, Know ye not, we, by the way, we find this question more times in, in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians than anywhere else in the Bible. This is the know ye not chapter. Know ye not? that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. The harlots that Paul refers to are the prostitutes that worked in the city. And many of them probably worked in the temple of Aphrodite before it was destroyed. And it is probable that there were cases in the church of Corinth where members were purchasing their their services. Paul is a, a lot of commentators believe that Paul is addressing something very specific, but even in addressing something this heinous, Paul is being very kind, very benevolent, and he's not saying, know ye not, brother Jim, that you ought not do this thing. Paul takes the Christian theology of the body and he expounds upon it to shed light on this wicked situation. See, when Christ saved you, not only was there a spiritual union formed, but there was a union formed with the totality of your person. When he says in verse 15, Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ, this is not drawing on the body of Christ metaphor. You know, that we as a local congregation, we are the body of Christ. That's not what he's drawing on. He's talking about an individual picture of individual salvation. And he is saying... If you are a Christian, you are united with Christ 24-7. He is ever with you. Galatians 2.20 I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Therefore, when you engage in sexual immorality, brothers and sisters, you bring Christ with you. That's the point Paul is making. You cause the second person of the Godhead, the Holy Son of God, to participate in your sin. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Your bodies belong to Him. And when you go and commit promiscuity, you take the members of Christ and you make them members together with an harlot. Paul says that by being promiscuous as a Christian, you are causing your body something that belongs to Christ to become the member of a harlot. You are bringing Christ into your fornication. 
you don't have the ability. If, if you are a Christian and if Christ lives in you, you don't have the ability to say, Lord, I, you know, I really enjoyed worshiping you on Sunday. I felt your presence. I knew that the Spirit was moving. But now it's Tuesday night and I, I, I'm going to take a break from you. Go do my own thing. Verse 16, there, there's another lesson for us to learn here. What? Know ye not? That he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, are shall be one flesh. What verse 16 tells us is that sexual intimacy forms a union between those involved that is so intense that it is likened to the union between Christ and his people. There is an unavoidable union that is formed through sexual intimacy. Notice the language here. He says, one body and one flesh. What is that the language of? It's the language of marriage, right? The, 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 the most intense union that two human beings can ever engage in. The covenantal relationship of marriage. Now, this is not saying that if you, if you are sleeping with someone that you are automatically married in God's eyes, as I've heard that argument used before. The Bible nowhere uh, license such an excuse. But it is saying that this union, this union that is caused by sexual intimacy is only to occur in the bounds of marriage. Think back to Genesis 1 and 2. Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she bare him a son. After Adam knew his wife, they came to know one another in a way that is impossible without intimacy. We need to understand something very clearly. There is no such thing as casual sex. It does not exist. There's nothing casual about intimacy between a man and a woman. Sexual acts were designed by God to fuse two people together inseparably. That was their design. And the sin of fornication has dangerous and damning implications because you leave a piece of yourself with every partner that you have and no matter how much that you may love your future spouse, there is a sense in which they will never be able to have all of you. God forgives sin. Let me stop there and say, God forgives sin. But that doesn't mean that we won't have to reckon with its consequences. Virginity should not be a rarity amongst the people of God who are not yet married. So I urge you, whether, whether you've been married 20 years, whether you are preparing for marriage, whether you have just been married, whether you are currently courting someone that you hope to soon marry, guard your purity and protect your holiness. And if you've already sinned in this area, repent of those sins and purpose that you will no longer serve your lust, but you will glorify God with your body. There are some consequences to our sin that there, there just seems to be no physical amends to. We have to deal with those consequences. But I do believe that God can bring restoration. We can experience forgiveness. 
And God can restore us from previous mistakes that we have made and sins that we have committed. But this text makes it very clear that that's very serious. This is a very serious issue. He ramps up the seriousness. Verse 17, he says, But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. That's how tight-knit this this fusion is. Fight to maintain your purity because you are one with the Spirit of Christ. And when you sin, you bring Him into your den of iniquity. That's the delinquency. Look lastly in verses 18 through 20 at the demand. The demand. Good preaching always has an explanation and an exhortation. Paul has given this doctrinal framework. He has laid out the Christian theology of the body. See, if all you do is explain, you will leave your people confused, not knowing what to do with the information. But if all you do is exhort and command with no no logical reason why, you will leave them very frustrated. They will feel as if they are in bondage. So Paul doesn't do that. He lays out the framework, and he shows us how it is applied, and now he is going to command us. Verse 18, the command that follows this complicated... We we are done with the complicated portion of this text. What follows is very short, very simple, but very forceful. And he says in verse 18, flee fornication. Flee fornication. Paul doesn't leave any room for excuses or misunderstandings. When it comes to the sin of fornication, don't coddle it, don't rationalize it, don't minimize it, don't justify it, don't pamper it, don't invite it, don't be entertained by it. Flee from it. Run from it. Get away from it. As far as you can, as fast as you can, run from it. Sexual immorality is too strong and too dangerous for you to withstand. The Bible tells us to resist the devil to fight against the devil. But when it comes to the sin of fornication, we're not even to put up a fight. We are to flee. Don't fight it because eventually you will lose the fight. Flee. If there is something that you look at that tempts you with sexual sins, don't look at it. If there is something that you listen to that tempts you with sexual sins, don't listen to it. If there is something that you read that tempts you with sexual sins, don't read it. There is someone in your life that tempts you with sexual sins, get away from them. You say, Pastor, that's radical. That's that's eccentric. What what are you telling me to do? To just isolate myself as much as I possibly can from all temptations? What did Jesus say? The Sermon on the Mount. Right after he said, if any man looks upon a woman right, with lust in his heart, he's committed adultery. What does he say? He says, verses 29 and 30 of chapter 5, And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Is Jesus using hyperbole? He is. Okay, He's not really exhorting you to amputate body parts. But he's communicating the seriousness with which you must run from this particular sin. 
You must run from it. You must flee it. Hold your place in 1 Corinthians 6 and turn with me back to Genesis chapter 39. I want to show you an episode in the life of Joseph. Joseph is the epitome of fleeing fornication. Genesis 39, I want you to look at it, verse 7. The Bible says, And it came to pass, after these things, Joseph had been exalted to a place of prominence, He was serving Pharaoh that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and she said, lie with me. There is the temptation. But he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master, what if not what is with me in this house? And he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. You know, Joseph is saying, You know, your master doesn't know what I'm doing right now, but I am accountable to him, and he has entrusted me his life. He says in verse 9, There is none greater in this house than I. Neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. Now watch what Joseph says next. Make this your motto. Verse 9, How then... Can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Because of all that God has done for you, because of the blessings that God has poured out upon you, because of the redemption that comes from Jesus Christ, you should think about sexual sin and you should say, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against the God that redeemed me and cleansed me with His own blood? Verse 10, And it came to pass... As she spake to Joseph day by day, some could argue that perhaps Joseph should have, after that first temptation, should have cut it off right there. And it came to pass, as she spake to Joseph day by day, that he hearkened not unto her. So he's he's not listening to her, not to lie by her, to be with her. Notice, he doesn't even want to be with her. It says, not to lie by her or to be with her. Get away from it. Verse 11, And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business, and there was none of the men of the house there within, again, we could talk about that, putting himself in a place of vulnerability. But notice what Joseph does in verse 12. She caught him by his garment. He's wearing an outer cloak. She caught him by his outer cloak, his garment. And she said, Lie with me. And he left his garment in his hand and he fled and got himself out of there. That's fleeing fornication. It it would be better for you if you were in a situation where you feel the temptation to stand up and say, I cannot do this wickedness and sin against God and run out into the street than to remain any longer in that situation. If it means losing your coat, it means losing your coat. What Joseph did was fleeing fornication, but what we often do is inviting fornication, in welcoming fornication. Feasting on ungodly entertainment that features immodesty, immorality, that is not fleeing fornication. 
giving yourself free range to mindlessly roam the internet, especially at night when your willpower is at its weakest, is not fleeing fornication. Spending periods of time alone with a member of the opposite sex is not fleeing fornication. You will never find me alone with a woman that is not my wife. Because I don't trust myself. If you fail to establish boundaries in your premarital relationship, if you fail to establish boundaries in your marriage, you will fall to sexual sins. No one is holy enough to withstand the temptation. Because I feel like I have the liberty to be harder on the men, let me say this. If she is not your wife, you have no right to touch her. You have no authority over her. You have no claim to her. She does not belong to you. You say, well, her father is not a Christian. He doesn't provide godly counsel. Well, God is her father. She belongs to him. You say, well, she's not even a Christian. Then what are you doing with her in the first place? Be a man. Guard yourself and protect her. Protect her. When two young people, when they, when they start talking about marriage and serving the Lord and, and making plans, and I love that. I rejoice in that. I, I'm the first to celebrate when I hear that. But it must be done God's way if God is going to bless it. See, here's what we do. We disregard what God says about it. We do it however we want to do it. We get in a mess, and then we come to God and say, Lord, will you fix our marriage? Will you fix our relationship? Make it your prerogative from this day forward that no matter what you may have done in the past that wasn't according to biblical principle, no matter what kind of mess you may have gotten yourself into, say today, from this day forward, we're doing it the Lord's way if we want the Lord to bless it. Young man, I don't care how much you tell me you love her. Husband, I don't care how much you tell me that you love her. If you are not fleeing fornication, you are dishonoring her dishonoring her and you are laying a foundation of a marriage that will be built on shame and distrust I mean you've been you've been promiscuous your whole life and now all of a sudden you two are going to get together and that's it you're going to be faithful from here on out really ask any married Christian who was promiscuous before his marriage or her marriage. And they will tell you that it is one of the greatest regrets of their life that they could not be wholly given to their spouse. Paul continues. Look back at 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 19. Verses, end of verse 18, getting into verse 19. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. See, when you commit the sin of fornication, you are sinning against your own body, but as we'll see in verse 19, your own body is not really your own body. 
Verse 19, what know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you? God took up residence in you through his spirit when he saved you. And your body is to be the abode of his holy presence. It's not to be a host for all sorts of immorality. Do not drag Christ and his spirit into your sin. You are not your own, brothers and sisters. You are bought. You are purchased. You are a slave to Christ. Being a Christian is slavery, but what a blessed slavery it is. We could never serve a better master. Christ has redeemed you from the auction block of your sin so that you no longer must be a slave to your lusts and to your passions. You have the freedom to serve him. And he goes on in verse 20. He says, For ye are bought with a price. Next time temptation to sin comes, next time it tells you that it, you must succumb to it, next time that it tells you just one more time and then we're done for good, remember and consider the price that was paid for your body so that you no longer have to sin, so that you no longer have to be a slave to those passions. Another lie that we tell us, men and women too, well, everybody struggles with it. It's a lie. Now, yeah, everybody will, will struggle with sexual temptation for the rest of their life. That's true. But believe it or not, there are Christians who abstain from pornography entirely and completely. There are Christians, single young people that are not yet married, that keep themselves pure and holy for their future spouse. Jesus bought your body so that you could do that. What is the price of your redemption? It is the shed blood of Christ. There on the cross, Jesus suffered and bled and died to purchase you and to save you from the sins that damned your soul. And he gave his life for you that God's wrath might be satisfied against you, that you might be freed from bondage. He broke the power that sin had over you. He canceled the debt that your sin surmounted. He purchased your life. He purchased your liberty. He bought your freedom. How can you go on serving those sins? Giving yourself to those sins? Flee them today. Forsake them. Hate them. And use your body to glorify the God of heaven because your body is not your body. It's his body. On the cross, Jesus earned the right to direct every step of your life. Sexual sin did not die for you. It's enslaving you. It's destroying you. It's eating away at your soul. Jesus Christ died for you and shed his blood to defeat that sin. Before you were saved, sin was your Lord and Master, but if you are in Christ, you serve a new king. Do you understand that? You serve a new king. To those of you who are here today courting sexual sins, I pray that God uses this message to convict you. That you see the seriousness of it. We are, we are moving into a new section at the beginning of chapter 7. Okay, We're not going to beat this like a broken drum. I believe if God... God doesn't 
convict you in, in one message, me preaching the same thing for the next five weeks in a row won't do you a lick of good. Perhaps you are compartmentalizing your life. You keep your sexual immorality hidden in a closet somewhere to everyone else. You look like a moral, upstanding Christian, but you know the truth. You know what you do when no one's watching. You know the secrets that only you know. And let me say this again. I said it last week. It's true this week. This sermon is not prompted by any, anything that I, I know about anybody in here. I, I, all I'm doing is preaching the text. We started in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, 14 months ago, and we're preaching right through the book. Okay? If you feel like this is meant just for you, perhaps that is the Lord saying something to your heart. If that is you, may you confess your sins before God. May you experience true repentance. Confess your sin as far as it's known. If it is a secret sin that you've been hiding away, I'm not telling you you need to get up and tell the whole church about it. Deal with it before God. But on the other hand, if you've been struggling with the same sin for a while now and you've been telling yourself, I'm going to take care of it, I'm going to deal with it, and you can't and you're failing, perhaps it's time to seek help. Let me say this, you're not alone. You sit amongst a church full of people that love you. You have a pastor that loves you, wants to see you serve the Lord. Let me share this story and I'll be, I'll be done. It's not in the notes, it just came to me. I remember when I was a church member of Heritage Baptist Church in Fayetteville, Georgia. And one of my best friends was also a member there. He was a few years older than me. He was very convicting to be around. Because I just thought this, this guy was, kind of, you know, he had progressed to a level in his Christianity that I, it just seemed like I hadn't. The love that he had for the Lord, the sensitivity that he had for sin. One day after church, the pastor announced from the pulpit, he said that this brother would like to speak with all of the men of the church. Immediately after the worship, we were asked to step into the library of the church. My friend stood up, and he told all of the men of the church that he was struggling with pornography. And he requested that all of the men pray for him, help him. You think any of the men in that room said, How could you do this? Get out of here! If I was convicted before, well, I was sure convicted now because here was this, this guy that I just thought had, had attained to such a high level in the faith and here he is having the humility to confess the sin, request help. By God's grace, through the prayers of his people, he beat that sin. He experienced victory over that sin. He's happily married. And he's still one of my best friends. He's still one of the most godly people I know. Perhaps you live in sexual sin because you've never experienced the saving grace of God. Your body isn't His because He hasn't purchased it on the cross. 
If you've come to that realization, hear the gospel. The gospel is calling you to give up rags for riches, dirt for diamonds, wretchedness for repentance, guilt for grace, shame for a savior. No matter the depth of your sexual sins, there is hope for you because there is a redeemer that can wash you and cleanse you and make you white as snow and help you to overcome, to experience victory. You may never have your virginity again, but you can be virtuous. You can be mightily used of the Lord. Come unto him. Flee fornication. Glorify God in your body. Let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning for giving us the grace to hear such a needed message. It's not a message that's very fun to preach. It's not a message that's very fun to listen to. But it's in your word. We need to hear it. I thank you for sending the Lord Jesus Christ who is the example of our purity, who is the example of our holiness, who lived a life that none of us have lived so that through faith we might be his righteousness. Father, for your people here that perhaps are struggling with sexual sins, whatever sort, whatever variety, give them the grace to experience true repentance and to take the steps of repentance, not just to say, I'm done with it, like we've said so many times before, but to truly pursue holiness. Remind us, Lord, that in Christ, though we stumble, you are perfectly pleased with us. Love us, care for us. For those who know not the Savior, you be pleased to convert them by your grace. Cleanse them from iniquity. Wash them from sin. Redeem them for your own honor and glory. We thank you for all that you've done and all that you will continue to do. In Christ's name, amen.